Hey everyone, a quick word of warning. Um, This particular episode had a number of technical difficulties uh, plague its production. Thankfully, I think we've been able to restore it, and it's kind of appropriate uh, since the subject matter here is about restoring a film. Um, What you may notice is about past the 18-minute mark, Um, my side of the conversation was lost. Thankfully, we have all of Joshua's original audio, but my side was lost. So I've had to recreate my questions. So anything I ask him, um, I've got my notes and I was able to restore it, but the actual audio is sort of recreated. So with that, um, little, uh, proviso at the beginning of the show, uh, let's go forward and enjoy this conversation with Joshua Grossberg. Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible. This episode, Milton's guest is Joshua Grossberg. He is the director of the upcoming film, The Lost Print, a documentary about the search for the lost original cut of Orson Welles' film, The Magnificent Ambersons. Hello, Joshua. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Milton. It's good to be here. I'm super excited to have you on the program. You are about to make a documentary about something I have been curious and uh interested in for decades uh for those of us uh in the listening audience who are not aware of uh what you're working on uh give us the quick introduction to your upcoming project the lost print yeah so i'm the director of the search for the lost print the making of orson wells is the magnificent ambersons this is a documentary uh, a long time coming um, it started, uh, the quick background is that 25 years ago, when I was a student at Northwestern University, I had seen The Magnificent Ambersons, Orson Welles' second film, loved it, um, absolutely fell in love with it. And uh, a mentor, film historian of mine, told me about this crazy behind the scenes turmoil that uh, affected the film. Um, in brief, you know, Orson. Uh, made Ambersons, which was his most personal film, and was invited by the State Department to go down to Brazil uh, to shoot Carnival as part of a movie that he would make about Pan-American relations. And so he left Ambersons in post-production after putting a director's cut together with his editor, Robert Wise. He left it. He left that cut in good hands with Wise and flew down to Brazil. And this was in early 1942. And um, Basically, while he was down there, uh, Robert Wise sent him the, a print, a work print of the original director's cut that they had worked on together. And while Wells was in Brazil, he would look at this cut and cable back suggestions to Robert Wise. And of course, Robert Wise went on to direct The Sound of Music and Star Trek The Motion Picture and other great films. 
Um, but at the time, he was best known uh, for editing Citizen Kane and Ambersons. Um, but lo and behold, RKO Pictures, the studio that was backing Wells at the time, uh, they held two test screenings of the two hour and 11 minute version of The Magnificent Ambersons in Pomona and Pasadena. And these test screenings, unfortunately, were a disaster because this happened right after essentially a few months after Pearl Harbor. And people were hoping to see something, you know, that, uh, I guess, uplifted them. And here was a very dark, brooding drama about a, a family in disintegration in the Midwest at the turn of the century. And it, the, it just the audience didn't really respond to it well at all. And RKO realized they had a financial debacle potentially on their hands, and they ordered Wise to recut the film and to reshoot the ending. And in short, um, Wells had the picture taken away from him while he was in Brazil, and the studio ended up releasing a 90-minute theatrical version that had a totally awkward ending and just really destroyed his ultimate vision. Um, it, it says a lot about the film that it still has come down over time, these past 80 years, as a masterpiece even though uh, the last third of the film was, was redone uh, by the studio. Um, but effectively, the, the big question of my documentary is what has happened to the work print that Wise had sent to Orson in Rio? No one knows. And that's what's fascinating. And um, I had leads when I went down to Brazil 25 years ago that I developed. Um, and the, the documentary is going to chronicle my search for this work print in Brazil, because if you find the original director's cut of the Magnificent Ambersons, it's like finding a lost Picasso. Um, it essentially is, is considered by film historians to be the Holy grail of cinema. You know, um, you know, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, being able to restore his original vision to the big screen uh, would be a dream come true. And so the documentary will follow my search, uh, that's one storyline. And at the same time, we're going to flash back to the making of Ambersons in late 1941 and its tumultuous post-production. And along with that, tell the story of Wells' fall from grace in Hollywood, which really hasn't been told. For instance, The Other Side of the Wind talked about his, his later career. Um, and this was a key moment where he was at the height of his power and then he was cast out by RKO, fired and unceremoniously exiled uh, from, you know, the golden age of, of filmmaking in, in Los Angeles, that is. So, yeah, that's the long and short of it. And we'll also delve into the mythology that's grown up around this lost print, which is fascinating. Um, for instance, there have been crazy stories. I've had people contact me from around the world uh, claiming to have seen uh, the original ending, you know, maybe when they were a child or that a print might have been circulating around France of the original version. And so there's this whole other mythology too, which we'll, we'll talk about in the film as well as interview contemporary filmmakers about Amberson's influence on them. And last but not least, we are going to show uh, reconstructed sequences from the original version. So at the end of the day, I hope to find the print through this journey and in making this documentary, hopefully we can discover it and then show the original version of Amberson's. But even then, we'll still reconstruct sequences for, for the search for the lost print to give people a taste of what Wells was thinking creatively, artistically. Uh, so I, I think it's a fascinating story, and I'm, I'm excited to get down to Brazil to finally finish the documentary.
Well, I wish you got speed on your search and all of your efforts. Uh, those of us who are fans of Wells have been fascinated by this. Um, and as I believe you've referred to it in your promotional materials as, as the Holy Grail of cinema. And it does have that Grail mythology-like quest-like aspect to it. Um, you said that you first learned about the, the let's call it the butchering of Amberson's um, when you were in college, uh, when you screened the, the film and you enjoyed it quite a lot. Did you learn about the butchering before or after you saw the, the 88 minute version? It, it was actually before. And I'm sorry, no, I, I take it back. It was after, rather, I learned about the butchering. Uh, but the funny thing is, I watched Ambersons and I was struck by the film very much. I, I really liked it. But then, when um, it was a, a mentor of mine, his name is Rich Johnson, he's since passed away, and uh, he would hold a, a, a he was the master of our dorm, and he would hold a series called Recog, and we'd screen movies once a week. And Rich was this amazing character. Um, he knew everything there is to know about classic cinema and was a very inspirational uh, figure um, among us cinephiles at Northwestern. And so, uh, you know, he had, when, when he told me about the making and, and the idea that the picture was taken away from Wells, you know, and then it really made sense because there were just scenes you know, well, for one, you know, the ending in the hospital, it's just totally off. It just doesn't go with the film. Right. But, you know, I, I understand why they did it. It kind of puts a nice little neat, happy ending on it. And and a lot of films back then did that. So it wasn't a surprise. But when I learned about it, then I'm like, oh, my God. So what was the original ending like? And, of course, we know that the original ending was set in a boarding house, you know, where Joseph Cotton's character Eugene and Agnes Moorhead's Fanny are sitting there, uh, you know, in the living room, just, you know, having a real intense moment because, you know, uh, essentially George Minifer has gotten his comeuppance and it ends on a very dark note. Um, much, much, much different than the book. Actually, the book is actually more aligned with the Hollywood ending, uh, you know, ironically, but, but Wells being, uh, the really Renaissance artist that he was at the time doing radio, you know, film theater, you know, he had a specific vision and it was, it was grand and uh, something that I think a lot of people seeing Hollywood movies weren't accustomed to seeing. And I think because of that uh, and also because of the fact that he wasn't in LA to fight his own battles, you know, he had the picture taken away from him. Um, which is which is tragic, and that so that story intrigued me. And as it happened, uh, I was planning a trip to Brazil with my my then college roommate. We were going to just go backpack around Brazil because I knew of some Brazilians and stay at homes and things like that. But then I, I had been interning at Jersey Films, which is Danny DeVito's old film company, uh, the previous summer, and I remember a woman there named Joelle Bentalila, who's an English filmmaker, and she had actually worked on It's All True. And for those of, of you that are familiar with It's All True, that's the documentary that had come out around 93, 1993, all about the, you know, uh, essentially derailed trip to Brazil in which Wells was shooting these four short films for the State Department. Uh, he never actually completed that anthology picture um, and a lot of that footage was left to rot in the Paramount vault. And so these filmmakers 
uh, Myron Maisel and Bill Crone, they ended up putting that film together as best as they could to honor Wells's vision. Um, you know, uh, whether they succeeded or not, it really depends on the, uh, it depends on the perspective. I and mean, I know that Beatrice Wells wasn't necessarily thrilled with it, but that being said, Joel worked on this film and I was like, well, I'm going to be in Brazil, you know, maybe I'll look into this print, this mysterious, you know, disappearing print, whatever happened to it. And I called her up and she put me in touch with Bill Crone, the director of It's All True. And he said, oh, this was something that we were hoping to look at, but we never really investigated it. That's great. You're going to Brazil. Let me give you the name of this Brazilian filmmaker, Rogério Gonzerla. He's in Rio and you should talk to him because he made two Orson Welles documentaries about Welles' time in Rio. And I said, that'd be great. And he gave me Rogério's contact number. And literally, I showed up on Rogerio's doorstep on Christmas Day with Dom, <laughs> my roommate, knocking on Rogerio's door. He, he was in a little apartment uh, overlooking Sugarloaf, that beautiful mountain that, for instance, anybody that saw Moonraker from James Bond remembers that famous cable car scene. And Rogerio, I tell him, hey, nice to meet you. You know, I'm a friend of Bill Crone's. Uh, I would love to just talk to you about this missing print of Orson Welles. And he was intrigued and he invited me up to his roof and we literally drank beer till three in the morning, talking movies and Wells and, you know, just our passion for cinema. And, you know, he said, by the end of the conversation, he said, you know, I've heard about this print and I really like you. And I think you should stay, you and Dom should stay with us as long as you want. Uh, and, you know, he was living at the time with his wife and daughter. And so we, we stayed with them for a good week and a half, about a week, week and a half. And Rogerio and I uh, went to investigate, you know, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, I thought my phone was off. <laughs> we went to basically investigate uh, this print. And that's when he called up an archivist that he remembered had, had worked um, or had been plowing the archives of Synergia Studios. Because Synergia was the studio in Rio that had received RKO's print, the original version, right? Mm. And we met with this guy, Michelle. His name is Michelle Duasanto Espirito. Excuse me. Michelle Duasanto Espirito. And Michelle told us something that he had never told Rogerio before, and that he had seen uh, canisters belonging to Wells in the late 50s and late 60s. And now uh, Michelle was not a, an employee of Synergia, but he was in the archives every day for years and years and years. He was somebody that was a, a passionate protector of, of film and wanted to, you know, was always coming through the archives and cataloging and whatnot. And he was absolutely confident that he had ran, ran across a print of Wells, but he wasn't sure if this was actually Amberson's or not. And so he gave me the names of a bunch of collectors to, to track down. And as well as a couple of other leads. And that's when I thought, I think I have a documentary here. Um, and so when I, I left Rogerio and I went back to Chicago, at first I was only thinking in terms of my, my film thesis, it would be great to do something on this. Um, but I also came up with the idea for this documentary. If we search for the lost print, it's not unlike the reporter in Citizen Kane searching for Rosebud. Right, right. You know, and... And then so in doing so, we get a portrait of Charles Foster Kane, right? Well, in my documentary, we would have this, you know, really intimate portrait of Wells, the artist, during this critical moment of his career. And whether or not we really 
have any insight into Wells, we'll, we'll have various different perspectives and we'll tell the story similar to the structure of, of Kane. And uh, I just absolutely loved this idea, fell in love with it, garnered the support of film critics like Jonathan Rosenbaum, who edited uh, the famous Wells Bogdanovich book, uh, This is mm-hmm. Orson Wells, and a number of other people like Bill Crone came aboard. Problem is, in, in the mid to late 90s, uh, you know, there was no Kickstarter then, and it was very difficult to get grants. No one, people thought I was, this was a highfalutin kind of pie in the sky idea, even though it's not just about the print, it's about this documentary in this very important period of Wells's life. Uh, I, I just had a very difficult time raising money. And so ever since, I've been trying to get this project off the ground. And as it happened, uh, finally, um, I think a lot of it had to do with Mank, but TCM. You know, I, I talked to the folks over at TCM and they got it instantly and said, we want you to get back to Brazil and go find this print. And they came aboard to sponsor the expedition and we're absolutely grateful. And now we're finally going to make this documentary the way I, I want to. And uh, it's it's a dream. Now, forgive me if, if I'm conflating or misremembering here, but the fact that what you're describing took place in the mid to late 90s did... Was there a major magazine piece written about your efforts? Because I, I seem to recall it was either in Vanity Fair or somewhere, a a, a profile of someone okay, doing so, a search. Yeah, so Vanity Fair, um, they published a, a, a long piece about the making of Ambersons in two thousand and two, um, and writer Dave Camp he interviewed me about my search for the lost print, um, and it appeared in in his article. Um, it wasn't an extensive investigation about what I was doing, but it was enough. It was a few graphs that mentioned my, my search and that there had been this print that Robert Wise had sent to Wells in Brazil. And that was really about it. Cause the, the article concentrated more on, on Amberson's as, as a work of art and, and of course it's making, but I would subsequent subsequently get calls from a variety of reporters that had read that and want to know more and over the years, and and as it happened, uh, I got a call two years ago uh, by Le Monde, the French newspaper based in Paris. They're like their version of the New York Times. And they did a big piece um, on my search for the lost print because, of course, Wells is quite popular in France. And that actually was the instigation or the motivation, I should say, for me to really do another round of, okay, let's go and try and raise money and do this doc finally. <laughs> so I got back on, on track with that. And I happened to be talking with a friend of mine through the Producers Guild, Joe Schroeder, and he loved the idea and came aboard. And then I happened to run into another Producers Guild member, Gary Greenblatt, who was a Wells aficionado, and I had no idea. And he actually remembered reading about me in the Vanity Fair article. And he, he happens to be married to a, a Brazilian and it was like perfect. We had this great team together. And so I decided to go out to LA in January of 2020 and I shot a sizzle reel. I interviewed Peter Bogdanovich, who of course uh, was one of Wells' closest confidants and Wells was his mentor. And that was really terrific. And we put a sizzle reel together just at the moment we were getting interest from a production company about you know uh, funding the doc. COVID happened. And so we basically, we got sidelined, but actually it was kind of a blessing in disguise because I was able to use the time off to sort of regroup and figure out 
you know, we can think grander and, you know, TCM was always a company that was on my radar for this, but I wasn't sure if they were actually, you know, uh, you know, this was the time to pitch now because obviously no one's doing anything. And so I, I reached out and they absolutely loved the idea and came aboard to sponsor the research expedition down to Brazil. And I think it's great. They're wonderful partners, obviously, to be able to highlight a legacy title within their catalog. And one of them being an Orson Welles classic, I think is, is great. It was a win-win. So we're happy to have TCM aboard. And the, the goal is to get the documentary done in time for the 80th anniversary uh, in 2022. And TCM, um, if all goes well, they would show it and maybe have the world premiere. So, you know, but my dream would be to finish this film and we premiere it at the Cannes Film Festival because I love Cannes. <laughs> so that's fantastic. So could we back up a moment and could you tell us a little bit about what got you into filmmaking in the first place? Well, you know, I think a lot of filmmakers will, will say this and I won't be the only one. Uh, but at three years old, I remember sitting there and my dad taking me to see Star Wars on opening day. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta. So it was this little twin theater in like Doraville. And I remember it was like one of my first memories, if not the first memory, sitting front row center, my little feet dangling off the chair, looking up at this massive Death Star and, you know, these space battles and just thinking, wow, you know, amazing. And so ever since then, I, I fell in love with film and my, uh, my parents would always take me to see movies, not just once or twice, but three, four and five times, you know. I, and, and I'm, by the way, as equally uh, a Indiana Jones fan as I am Star Wars, if not more so. So it actually makes sense I'm doing this documentary because... You're searching for the Holy Grail. <laughs> it's kind of my own way to live out that dream of being Indiana Jones, you know. Uh, sans whip, probably, but you never know. Maybe I'll have a machete. And So anyway, um, you know, there is an Indiana Jones-like quest to this story, which I, I just find fascinating. And, um, you know, as uh, uh, in high school, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker and would make little shorts and stop motion animations and whatnot. And, you know, that led to college. And then after that, doing a bunch of 16 millimeter short films. And then I made a feature length documentary about Hurricane Katrina about 12 years ago. And that got distribution. And I've been working in the doc world ever since. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my, my short and sweet background. And let's get a little more specific into Wells. What what is it that got you into Orson Welles' films? I actually had seen uh, Touch of Evil on the big screen and was blown away by that film. Um, and I just was like, you know, it was so modern and so different from a lot of the films at the time. And of course, you know, the famous opening shots with, with Heston. And I mean, you can't beat that. And seeing the director's cut, I became enamored with Wells and um, I, I'm pretty sure I'd seen Citizen Kane before that, but it, it was like, I think I saw Citizen Kane, if I recall my freshman year of college, you know, and in film class. And I actually didn't appreciate it as much. I, I got a little bored by it, but you know, you, you have these film classes that are like meeting at 11, 10, 11 AM. And you know, you're, you're like, you were up till four or five. I, I think sleep had lack of sleep had something to do with it, but I, I went back to Citizen Kane and then really 
it then it struck me, especially when I saw it at the Music Box Theater in Chicago on the big screen. Um, you know, there's nothing like seeing a Wells film on the big screen. You just can't compare it to television. In fact, I just saw the Magnificent Ambersons at the Paris Theater uh, a week and a half ago, and it was just marvelous. It was, you know, the humor really comes out uh, when you see something with a, an audience, you know. But uh, you just see the artistry. Wells is is was a genius in so many ways, and he broke the mold. Of course, no great artist is truly able to fulfill his vision without the help of wonderful collaborators. And certainly Wells's entree into film was aided and abetted by Greg Toland. You know, I mean, it was Toland that taught him so many of these techniques that we now just equate with Wells today, such as deep focus photography. Um, but Wells brought his theatrical sense to the big screen. I mean, you look at the pools of light in Citizen Kane um, when the reporters going into, you know, into the, the, the archives and, you know, there's just the, the sound, the way Wells would use sound and overlapping conversations that really was not done. And Wells took what he knew from his other mediums, from radio, especially, and, you know, injected that into cinema to create what is essentially the modern motion picture. And, that's something that we take for granted these days because film, you know, uh, today film has gotten away from, I think, a sense of drama and character development in favor of big spectacle and special effects. But at heart of the last 50 or 60 years or so, you know, Citizen Kane and Wells' subsequent films really kind of laid a template upon which contemporary filmmakers have, you know, uh, built upon and done some great work. And I think his influence is profound. Um, but the tragedy of Wells is that really after Citizen Kane, none of his pictures, maybe with an exception here or there, um, at least within the Hollywood system, were ever his true vision. They were always in some way, you know, he had to field interference by studios that wanted things cut. And he had to fight tooth and nail to really you know, defend his decisions. He didn't have the power that he had. And, and to think that would be like taking away a couple of brushes from Picasso or, you know, um, you know, telling Da Vinci that, you know, you only can look at, you know, you can only paint with one eye, with one eye open. You know what I mean? So I, I think, I think in the end, it's just, it's so difficult to think about Wells's career without thinking what could have been. And I think that's, what's, really important about this documentary is we hope to show what could have been if not you know hopefully we find the lost print and if not we'll we'll at least give the audiences a taste of of the grander vision that wells never himself got to complete while he was alive so let's play out the optimistic scenario here let's say that you find this missing work print who would own it yeah well you know the ip belongs to warner media um, even if say a, a collector has it, that would have to most likely be negotiated, um, because certainly that collector could probably, probably put a claim on it. But to be honest, you know, if, if the print does turn up and we do think it's possible, um, there would likely be, you know, a substantial interest. Uh, well, no, I know there would be, I mean, Warner media would, would get their hands on it and it would, they would do whatever it takes to make sure that, that the IP that they own is returned to them. I'm sure there would be, 
some, you know, very intense talks on that front, but it's, it's possible that, um, uh, you know, I, I think it, at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't imagine it being any particular problem because I think anybody that had such a, a work of art within their purview, you know, say a collector had it and in their attic and didn't realize its value, they would want to see it with the grand theatrical release as much as we would. So, and see its restoration through. I mean, the people that I imagine if, the, if someone did have that print, they are avid cinephiles and they want to make sure that, you know, that this film gets out there in, in an appropriate way. So, so given the state of the film, like for example, that they found for the other side of the wind, we all know how difficult restoring that film was. Do you anticipate uh, what the process would be here and would you be involved? That's a good question, uh, Milton. I, I will say that, I mean, I'll certainly be a part of it for sure. Um, you know, I mean, uh, it wouldn't, you know, if we find it, that, that, that's kind of a fait accompli in my view. But in terms of the actual restoration and, and making sure that, that any sort of reels that are found are restored as, you know, best, as best as they can, uh, I would believe that would fall under, um, you know, TCM and Warner Media. They have various people who run the archives in L.A., you know, that that are in charge of prints that, that they would certainly, I imagine, have a role in that. There's also wonderful organizations like uh, the Film Foundation, which, you know, was started, um, you know, with uh, Scorsese's company and they do wonderful film preservation work. And they have various experts there that know how to handle uh, very delicate, you know, uh, 80 year old prints. And we have been in communications with them and they, they, while they can't endorse any projects, they do hope we find the print as do we. <laughs> so, Yes. We all hope that you find the print, but let's um, consider like what kind of dimensions that involves. Like what are the various degrees of success or failure here? Because um, is this a binary outcome? Um do you think that uh, you're either going to get all or nothing um, or are there various degrees of success um, that uh, we might not be thinking about here? Great question. Uh, I definitely think there's a middle ground. Um, you know, this is not a binary thing. You know, if, if we don't find the print, then we don't have anything. This is the print again is, is our rosebud. And, you know, the reporter never found out what rosebud means. I mean, the audience did. The point here is we, we hope to determine at least the fate of the print, what happened to it. It may, uh, you know, there, there really is hardly any records pertaining to what, what was done with it. Um, and at least verified where it was verified that the print was destroyed. If we verify that it's destroyed, then that will certainly accomplish our goal. If, but if not, that, you know, I know that there are some people that, that say, well, you know, the chances after 80 years, uh, how are you going to find a print, especially in a very humid country like Brazil? Well, let me tell you, you know, and I've, I've mentioned this elsewhere, but Metropolis, the original version was found in an Argentine museum in 2008. And that was a historic find. And it's quite possible. Brazil is a cinema loving culture. They worshiped Wells when he was there. 
And, you know, Gary and I, my producer, we talk about this all the time. Brazilians would never, ever have allowed a print to be destroyed. Uh, you know, collectors would jump at the chance, you know, if, if they knew that Wells had a, a new film coming out, they would say, oh, well, I'll take the print. You know, I, I'll, I'll view it for my own purposes. It's not with, within, I mean, it's within the realm of possibility that, that a print would have been removed from the archives. And the fact that we do have, I did have an eyewitness saying he saw canisters belonging to Wells years after the fact and giving me the names of collectors that may have removed that material, that's a substantial lead among others. And that's why, you know, part of this search is, yes, we'll learn the fate of the print. But again, we talk, when you talk about Shades of Grey, we're going to be really diving into this critical period in Wells's Hollywood career, which really hasn't been discussed in, in great detail. Uh, yes, it's all true focused on his Brazil filming. We'll touch on that, obviously, but not no one's really focused on the making of Ambersons and what happened post Citizen Kane. And that's a fascinating period where Wells was interested in doing some other projects, but he ended up choosing this very personal story. And he, remember, he grew up, he was born in Kenosha, grew up in the Midwest, and um, you know he could relate to to Tarkington's vision. I mean, at the time, the Magnificent Ambersons was a, a, a huge book, and so um, you know that that's a very personal. It was a very personal project. So that being said, you'll get a taste in the documentary of what Wells was up to in the early '40s at the height of his power, his fall from grace. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll certainly, obviously, frame it with this contemporary search in Brazil, uh, looking, tracking down these leads and me going through archives and meeting with people. And again, the whole idea of reconstructing sequences from the original version. Um, we would do that with animation and motion graphics to give people a sense of, say, the ballroom sequence. The original ballroom sequence outdid the opening sequence in Touch of Evil for being a one take, you know, a floating camera really, well, it wasn't floating, it was on tracks, but really getting a sense of some of the virtuoso uh, cinematography that Wells was doing that outrivaled Citizen Kane. And, you know, the, the end of, at the end of it all, the goal is to really show that in many ways, Ambersons was more superior to Citizen Kane as those that had seen the original version can attest. So, you know, I think that's important and why this film has value, whether or not we find the print. Yes, this is one of the many recurring tragic aspects of the story of Ambersons, because in many ways, um, the, the work that Wells did in that film was totally virtuosic. Um, and it was almost like um, he was in full control of those lessons he learned from Greg Toland, even accounting for the fact that what we have now is an is an incomplete version of what he was able to accomplish directly after Kane. Yeah, it's it's a very controlled film, uh, you know, and that's the thing tonally when you can tell fairly easily when things were were reshot and just kind of plugged in there because it really just kind of ruins the flow or impedes the flow. Um, and I think stepping out of that, uh, you know, the, when you see the original or when you see the theatrical version, the 90 minute version that was released, you realize that, um, 
you know, this is something that, you know, what if, what if we, what if you had the original version? I think you see that it's, it's much more, uh, the level of skill from going to Kane to Amberson's, you know, his proficiency in filmmaking, you know, evolved exponentially. And, um, and I think it portended the future too, the future of Wells, you know, Wells got more experimental as he, as he went on. And, you know, the things that he was doing in Amberson's, um, not only with camera work, but with sounds really, uh, I, I think just, you know, again, laid the groundwork for, you know, more contemporary films to follow. I mean, you look at Wes Anderson's work. I think Royal Tenenbaums is a perfect example of someone that really drew on Wells' style to make uh, what is a modern day classic. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If you don't mind, I was going to ask you about one thing. This might be out of your uh, area of expertise, but I recall seeing a story several years ago about a film restoration effort, and I was just stunned at what they were able to do. And you're here about to go off on this journey, and... Uh, it, it's possible that you could find uh, the actual cans of the print, but the print, the lost print, will be in such terrible condition that people would maybe think it impossible to restore. But um, maybe I'm exaggerating here, but it almost seemed like they were able to restore one film that was almost practically like soup. Have you had a chance to do a lot of research into this aspect of the potential here? No, no, I, I've heard the same. I, I can't speak specifically to the the techniques on the on a technical level but it's amazing what uh a lot of the restoration experts can do the way they're able to really pull the image out of celluloid that that is just you know deteriorating to the point where you can barely see it um a lot of that is of course with the aid of of computers and um there are techniques uh, unfortunately i can't speak to that specifically um but Again, that's where I think 20, 30 years ago, if I went looking for the print and found it, um, and it was in a, in a very uh, delicate state versus now, in, in a way, it's kind of, there's an advantage now that there are techniques that exist that didn't 30, 40 years ago um, that could ensure a film is restored to its original, you know, vitality and, you know, imagery. So help us calibrate our expectations here, even, you know, if we're going to be the most optimistic possible. Um, I've I've seen some estimates as to what may or may not be uh, even in the realm of possibility of being found. In addition to this work print, there are other uh, reels that may have been, I don't know, negatives or something. Um, and I, I haven't really seen like really tangible, clear reporting on on what the best case scenario is and what maybe a likely scenario is so could you tell us a little bit about you know gauging your expectations for the search yeah well the best case scenario would be the entire uh entire film turning up um 
you know, there has been a dispute about maybe the number of canisters that that were in the archives, and we're trying to lock that down based on eyewitness accounts from Michelle. Um, but the fact is, if the collectors removed that material and it was indeed the lost print, um, then you know, here, here's the thing that I think a lot of people don't also realize is that in Brazil, the Magnificent Ambersons isn't called the Magnificent Ambersons. The Portuguese name for it is Soberbo, and, which means superb. And furthermore, Wells doesn't star in the picture like Citizen Kane. In, in fact, he was considering playing George Amberson Minifer, but decided at the last minute that he was too old to play the part having played Charles Foster Kane. And so he tapped, you know, what was ostensibly a B-movie uh, actor from Westerns, Tim Holt, for the role. And so a lot of people who may see this say film collectors or their families, really, because maybe let's say the film collector has passed away and the family has his uh, or her uh, material, you know, films upon films in canisters. And they happen to open this one up without with the exception of the title and hearing Wells's voice. They may not realize it's even in Orson Wells's film because he's not in it and it's got a different name. So it's plausible that they could literally be sitting in somebody's attic or in a museum, in an archive that, you know, and, and Brazil, it's fair to say, um, you know, there are certain archives there that a lot of material has not been cataloged. And we are we have people on the ground that we're working with, um, inclu including Rogerio's Gonzalez daughter, um, who are assisting us in making sure that we are able to conduct thorough searches of this material and also help us hunt down some of the leads that Michelle had given me. Um, but I will say, by the way, Rogerio, um, I, I want to finish this film for two reasons. Um, to, first, to uh, you know, honor the memory of Rich Johnson, who was my mentor at Northwestern that told me about the story originally, and also to pay tribute to Rogerio, who passed away in 2005. He was a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker um, and is, is uh, really, you know, to be able to, to go down there and hopefully, hopefully we find the print and to do it with his daughter, I think is an honor. One of the things you've said uh, about your vision for this film, um, I, I'm glad to hear about, and that is that um, the scope is not just the search for the print, but a little bit more about uh, the overall making of the film and um like for example i recently listened to a interview with joseph mcbride where he's a wells scholar and he was talking about uh, some of the popular misconceptions about wells's uh behavior when he was working in brazil and also just his you know what really happened between wells and the Archeo studio, and that the truth is a lot more complicated than some of the original stories. Uh, th this is true. I mean, well, I'm, I'm privileged to know Joe, uh, Joseph McBride. Um, Joe is one of Wells' foremost biographers. And, you know, I mean, he and I have talked about this quite a bit. Um, you know, first of all, for instance, there's a certain myths that, you know, uh, Wells was way over budget, you know, on, on Ambersons. And frankly, that's not necessarily the case. Um, 
you know, there are other things that, that you can figure out. And that is that, you know, first of all, RKO, RKO's role is obviously they're, you know, it's understandable that they're vilified for ruining quote unquote, the master's vision. But you have to understand back in 1942, no one saved director's cuts. I mean, this was the studio system where really the producer reigned at the time. RKO was one of the few studios that actually gave directors, you know, relative independence and power uh, for the most part. You know, it was kind of a decentralized place where uh, George Schaefer had his little units, his filmmakers running around making their movies. And Wells was one of them. He had the, the biggest, greatest contract in Hollywood, you know, final cut and all the, everyone else, the John Fords of the world, they were all jealous of Wells because here was a man that didn't even make movies and he suddenly had carte blanche. And so there, there was definitely animosity toward Wells in that respect, but to blame RKO necessarily for quote unquote, destroying the print is, is a fallacy in and of itself because RKO, first of all, no one saved director's prints like they do today, like the Snyder cut, you know, like of course, Warner Brothers has has issued the, the Snyder Cut and that, you know, people see the value in saving, you know, director's original visions. Look at how many iterations of Blade Runner that you see on DVD, you know. Um, it's all part of the monetization, uh, you know, turning film into quote unquote content. But that being said, there's value in doing that now. But back then, it's just something studios didn't think about necessarily. And that original footage that that RKO had cut was either melted down for use for nitrate during World War II for its nitrate, because um, again, celluloid back then was nitrate based, not acetate based. And then, uh, or it was dumped into the Pacific Ocean because we've heard there are different accounts as to what happened to the original footage. So, you know, that being said, our documentary will definitely dispel some of these myths and, and give you a real, uh, I think, up close take on what it was like to, to be working in the studio system, particularly at RKO during that, during that time. And we'll, we'll do this with the aid of, as I said, Joe McBride, we'll certainly be hearing from him in the documentary, most likely Robert Carringer as well, who put together a fantastic reconstruction of, of uh, the original version and uh, others too. So I'm excited about that. Well, Joshua, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And um, we all wish you the the greatest of luck uh, in your quest here. Um, we'll all be rooting for you. And um, it sounds like regardless of what you do or do not find, that you've got a fantastic documentary um, that's going to be coming towards us in the not-too-distant future. Um, could you do us a favor and tell us how to keep track of you on social media and how to follow the, the progress of this project? Yeah, thank you, Milton. Um, I'm really glad to have uh, people's support and interest on this project. Um, let me just also add that you can follow the, the search uh, at you know, Twitter and Instagram at Lost Print Movie. So, you know, do follow, uh, sign up and follow us. I'm going to be posting regular updates. We're going to have some really cool Wells content as well. Um, yeah, and it's just going to be fun. It's it's like, again, it's an Indiana Jones adventure for cinephiles and, and elsewhere. And also it's important for the preservation of film and the legacy of cinema going into the 21st century. The last thing I'll say is in this age where theatrical exhibition isn't as valued 
as much. You know, for me to be able to hopefully discover the print and screen it uh, again in theaters on the big screen, that would just be incredible. And it shows the importance of cinema and why we have to protect it. So thanks again for having me on this podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Well, thanks again, Joshua, and we wish you the best. Uh, thank you. Thank you.